0: Compass Media Networks, this is America's First News. This weekend, with your host, Gordon Deal. A difficult housing solution. I'm Gordon Deal with Jennifer Koshenka. Thanks for spending part of your weekend with us. Here's what's coming up this hour.
1: Western states have plenty of wide open land,
0: so why can't builders construct more homes? Here are the variety of reasons. If you like and comment on other people's posts all the time, are you an Instagram creep? how to change the behavior
1: a golden retriever in austin texas is so quirky outside his owners put up a sign explaining his behavior
0: and how the country's best college football conference might disappear next year
2: famously they haven't had a team in the college football playoffs since washington and i believe 2016. and you know they've gotten close in other years but they have this reputation for cannibalizing themselves where, you know, every team ends up with one or maybe two just kind of dumb, bad losses, and then that ends up discounting the team.
0: Lane Higgins at the Wall Street Journal on what's happening to the so-called Conference of Champions. Well, the cost of housing in Western states is soaring, but the simple solution, build more houses, is proving difficult. Here's why from Kyle Paoletta contributor to Insider. Kyle set the scene.
3: I think there's a housing crisis pretty much everywhere in America now. Obviously, almost every community is dealing with housing prices going up. But the West is a special case because you have this confluence of factors that are pretty broadly applicable, especially, you know, zoning that is mostly to facilitate single-family homes. But then you also have all of this conservation land. And so especially in, you know, coastal communities on the West Coast as well as kind of mountain areas, there's just a lot of land that is held by the federal government, held mm-hmm. by states. And so, you know, the old model of just sprawling sort of ran out of juice in the nineties, and the region just really hasn't fully pivoted away from that.
0: One of the places you focused on was Durango, Colorado. Explain what's happened there.
3: Yeah. So Durango's uh a really interesting city and it's, it's pretty similar to a lot of smaller kind of destinations in colorado montana wyoming new mexico uh where you you know you have this beautiful scenery you've got a, a art community but then it's just a very small place so it's not a lot of land not a lot of housing mm. stock and so just at, during the pandemic fewer than 500 people moved to durango but that was enough to increase prices by fifty percent. Oh, so man. you just have this, you know, enormous disruption to a really small housing market that's even exacerbated by being a vacation destination. So I had a someone at Headwaters Economics, which is a great think tank, say like housing has to kind of do double duty where you're both housing, you know, service workers or people who just retired there, as well as people who are visiting.
0: Mm. We're speaking with Kyle Pauletta contributor to Insider. His piece is called The Paradox of the American West. Um, and then explain how building codes or restrictions are tied in here, too, because it's not like you can throw up, uh, you know, so, some big apartment building in Durango to, to to help with demand.
3: Right. Yeah. I mean, that city specifically, they, they cap even apartment buildings are capped at three stories. So, you know, you're, you're just really limited in how much you can build. And, and that's a problem that's true kind of across the West. I mean, in California, the state has done a ton of work to kind of overrule local zoning codes by making it easier if you're certain distance to transit or if you have a certain amount of affordable housing, you can kind of just build taller than the zoning would normally mm-hmm. allow for. But um, but yeah, I mean, almost every city grew by expanding after World War II, and there, it, it's just been a real struggle to figure out how to, you know, I think I say, they're trying to retrofit density onto a really sprawling urban form, and it's just really complicated.
0: How come cities like Houston and Minnesota, or Minneapolis, as you point out in your story, were able to scale up supply?
3: I think... There, there's just been, a. I mean, they're two pretty different cases. Houston famously has no zoning at all. Minneapolis, I think, has a a much greater kind of political will behind it of eliminating single family zoning, making it easier to build duplexes and fourplexes basically everywhere. And another city that's done well is Seattle, is one of the few exceptions in the West that really has, at this point, a five, six, seven year commitment to reforming all of these policies. And and they managed to stabilize housing, mostly just by building density. Hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it, it requires a lot of political will. And then a lot of people I talked to for this said, like, we need some support from the federal government. I mean, federal policies, FHA loans, the interstate highways kind of created sprawl. We need to to change some things to, you know, create that federal support that makes the market easier for developers.
0: We've got this uh, rising problem with homelessness now, based on some of this too, right?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I, it's been striking to me that you know Phoenix, Las Vegas, cities that are considered pretty affordable, especially compared to the San Franciscos of the world, have an enormous surge in homelessness and. It just shows that you, you really do have to be building housing at every level of the market in every city in order to make sure that the people at the very end don't end up on the
0: street. Thanks, Kyle. Kyle Pauletta, contributor to Insider. Coming up next, securing your child properly in the car. Did you know traditional bed sheets harbor as much bacteria as a toilet seat? No wonder we shower more lately. The germs in your sheets can cause acne, allergies, stuffy noses, and ailments so gross it's hard to believe. Those are fears though you can put to bed with Miracle Made bed sheets. Miracle Made uses silver infused fabrics inspired by NASA that are thermoregulating to keep you at a perfect temperature All night. My wife and I have them. We love them. Miracle made is self-cleaning, self-cooling, luxurious, eco-friendly bedding designed to protect your skin for more restorative rest. Now my listeners can have a clean night's sleep while saving over 40% and sleeping cool all summer and warm all winter. Visit trymiracle.com/gordon to claim your free 3-piece towel set and save over 40% at checkout. Miracle-made is backed by a 30-day money-back guarantee. Visit trymiracle.com/gordon. Miracle-made bedding, NASA-inspired for out-of-this-world comfort. trymiracle.com/gordon. Thanks for being with us. Motor vehicle crashes are a leading cause of death for children. An updated annual data from the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration details just how dangerous it is for parents to secure their kids in improperly installed car seats. Since this is National Seat Check Saturday, we've got with us Ann Carlson, acting administrator of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. And what does the data tell us?
4: Well, Uh, Over the decades, the stats are way better. And that's because we now use car seats. So I grew up in a time when we barely used seat belts, let alone car seats for young children. But what we know about car seats is that they save lives. So for infants, if you have an infant in a correctly installed seat, fatality rates go down by 71%. It's 71% safer. For toddlers, that's more than 50%. So really, really important. We still have children dying in uh, traffic crashes, I'm afraid. Uh, In 2021, 1,184 children lost their lives in cars. Best way to protect against that is to use car seats safely and for older children to make sure they buckle up.
0: Okay, so explain, too, I guess, kind of the, the proper car seat for the appropriate age and size.
4: Sure. So for infants and toddlers... A rear-facing car seat installed in the back seat is the safest, and if you want details on this, you can go. NHTSA has a website, NHTSA.gov slash the right seat, and it gives you all sorts of information about compliance seats and the right seat for your child based on age, weight, and height. Once kids get a little bigger, they move into booster seats. Really important to use booster seats because seat belts are really designed for adults. And so they can come across the chest in the wrong place if you're too small. So one of the things we like to say is don't ask, when can my child get out of a car seat? Instead, ask, how long can my child stay in a car seat? Because they provide so much
0: protection. Wow. I know how critical uh, the the installation is. I I I think when I was doing it, uh, it's been, I don't know, 15 years or so uh like the local police department would do it for you and, and help. Is that still a thing?
4: That is a thing this very week. So this Saturday, all across the country, police stations, fire stations have certified car seat technicians who can either install the seat for you or check to see that you have your seat installed correctly. So one another important stack, about half of all car seats are not installed correctly and then they don't provide the safety benefits. Yeah. They're required to. So if you want to know where you can go, you can contact your city or county, or you can go back to that NISSA website. That's NISSA.gov slash the right seat and find a locality where you can go and get your car seat safely checked.
0: Hmm. We're speaking with Ann Carlson. She's acting administrator of the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. We're talking about securing kids in car seats. Um, when you combine, I guess, today's car safety technology, plus a properly installed car seat, I guess you're really helping yourself.
4: Absolutely. And you're help- most importantly, you're helping your child.
0: Yeah. So the uh, the awareness campaign, I feel like we could do this story every year, if not uh, every month. Do we make inroads?
4: We do make inroads, especially for young children, but we do know that a fair number of children who, as they get older, uh, Do not stay in car seats, and those car seats provide a lot of safety. So um, just because your child is eight or nine years old doesn't mean they shouldn't be in a booster seat. And again, I keep repeating myself here, but if you go to the NHTSA.gov website slash the right seat, you can find what kind of car seat your child should be sitting in based on age, height, and weight. Another important thing to know, your child should be in the back seat of the car until they're 13 years old. Safer because of all sorts of development issues, skeletal issues, and, and so forth. So it's just not safe to be in the front seat until you're 13 years old.
0: Is pretty much uh, every locale taking part in this safety week?
4: All the way across the country. So, again, you can check to see if your local fire department or police department is providing uh, that a certified safety technician to check whether your seat is safely installed or to put it in for you. Uh, and again, you can go to our website to figure out where you can go to get that safety check.
0: Well, I remember a demonstration, boy, that car seat's not even supposed to wiggle a, like a millimeter when it's installed.
4: That's exactly right. And the, and the rear-facing seats for infants and toddlers are the ones that are especially tricky. Uh, so really, really important about Again, half of all car seats are not installed correctly, and then you don't get the safety benefits that they yeah. provide.
0: Thanks, Anne. Ann Carlson, Acting Administrator with NHTSA. How is it possible that the best conference in college football might not exist next year? Here's this weekend's Jennifer Koshenka.
1: Is this the last hurrah? The Pac-12 is the hottest conference in college football early in this season, a conference that may not even exist next year. More from Lane Higgins of the Wall Street Journal.
2: Lane, what teams are
1: particularly hot right now in the Pac-12? Well,
2: the hottest one by ranking is USC, but the hottest one that's on the rise might actually be Washington, uh, which is fresh off of absolutely dominating Michigan State on the road. I believe it was 41-7, to so not a particularly close game. You know, there are two of the eight teams in the Pac-12 that are currently ranked, which is the most of any conference. And a bit surprising, given that, you know, earlier this summer, all we were talking about was the Pac-12 imploding and maybe not existing next year.
1: And the Pac-12 hasn't really been very good for the past few years either.
2: That's right. I mean, famously, they haven't had a team in the college football playoffs since Washington and I believe, 2016. And, you know, they've gotten close in other years, but they have this reputation for cannibalizing themselves where, you know, every team ends up with one or maybe two just kind of dumb, bad losses, and then that ends up discounting the teams. And, you know, USC barely lost out on a chance to go to the playoff because it lost to Utah in the Pac-12 championship last year. And, you know, one thing that's also notable is that last year, the Pac-12 had Colorado. I mean, they still do, but Colorado last year was probably the worst team in major Division One football. So, you know, won one game, and it was— pretty abysmal at that. So they uh, definitely did not have a reputation for competence last year.
1: And that has all changed thanks to Deion Sanders. Talk about what's going on at Colorado.
2: Yeah, I mean, what he's pulled off there is nothing short of remarkable. I mean, he's selling out Folsom Field. He's getting college game day to go cover their game against Colorado State and big noon kickoff and just it's pretty remarkable, even all the celebrities that are on hand to watch this Colorado team. So, aside from just the excitement, the reason is that he has some really good players that he brought in, most via the transfer portal, which is, you know, a similar model to what he did at Jackson State as well. And he has them just showing off. I mean, it helps that his two sons are incredibly talented, just like their father. I mean, Shador is the quarterback, and he's having an incredible season so far. And Shiloh is a cornerback, and he had a pick six on. Saturday against Colorado State. And, you know, it did sort of look like maybe Colorado State was going to pull out a win on Saturday and that maybe some of the shine of the arrow was going to wear off. But then, you know, after eight drives where they stalled, Shadur leads a 98 yard, two minute drill and successfully scores and gets the two point conversion to tie up the game and go to overtime. So he's got this team believing they're resilient and, uh, It's a lot of fun because Colorado football, it's unclear how good they might be. You know, three games is early. It's still in the overreaction part of the season. But uh, it looks like they might at least be a lot of fun and bowl eligible at the very least.
1: We're speaking with Lane Higgins of the Wall Street Journal. Lane, we talked about Washington's success and being a little bit of a surprise. And they're one of the teams that's, uh, we'll say, defecting. What is going on with the Pac-12? Well,
2: (laughs) that's... At the moment, it is currently just Oregon State and Washington State, but even that looks uncertain because there's been a lot of internal squabbling over which schools have the right to decide the future of the conference, um, so much so that Oregon State and Washington State actually brought a lawsuit and got a temporary restraining order to stop a board meeting with all the 12 presidents from happening because they don't – obviously, they're not a majority, and they can be outvoted on matters. Matters And they have a financial interest in, you know, continuing on the intellectual property and assets of the Pac-12. But currently, it's unclear how on earth they're going to play with just two teams. Theoretically, with NCAA rules, they have two seasons when they can, you know, be a two-team weird small conference before they would have to get back to the minimum of eight. But, you know, it's possible that maybe they can lure people or maybe they can convince teams from the Mountain West or the WCC. But it all is a little bit unclear. But the upshot is that four schools are going to the Big Ten, which happens to be four of the ranked Pac 12 teams UCLA, USC, Oregon, Washington. Four are going to the Big Twelve, Utah, Colorado, Arizona, Arizona State. And two more are going to the ACC, Stanford, and Cal, which is pretty strange, but, you know, marriage of convenience, I'd say.
0: That's this weekend's Jennifer Koshenko with Wall Street Journal sports reporter Lane Higgins. 30 minutes now after the hour on this weekend. Cereal was one of the best parts of being a kid remember that but getting older i had to stay away from all that sugar and empty carbs now there's magic spoon a cereal with all our childhood favorite flavors but high in protein and with less sugar their variety pack of four flavors includes cocoa fruity frosted and peanut butter this pack has zero grams of sugar 13 to 14 grams of protein and four to five net grams of carbs with only 140 calories per serving it's high in protein, keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, and soy-free. I love that cocoa flavor and drinking that chocolatey milk at the end. Go to magicspoon.com morning to grab a variety pack and try it today. Be sure to use our promo code MORNING at checkout to save five bucks off your order. Magic Spoon is backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. Magicspoon.com slash morning and use the code morning to get $5 off. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. Magicspoon.com slash morning. Thanks for spending time with us. Gordon Deal with Jennifer Koshenka coming up this half hour. Money challenges while planning a wedding. Also, accidental Instagram creeps. And the woman forced to put up her sign explaining her dog's behavior. We'll have that story in about 20 minutes. Well, sports leaders here and abroad are the latest to find themselves in sexual harassment scandals. Mel Tucker, football coach at Michigan State, has been accused of sexually harassing an anti-rape activist working with his team. He's in the process of being fired. And Luis Rubiales, resigned as head of the Spanish Soccer Federation for kissing a player on the lips. After she won the Women's World Cup, the player said the kiss was without her consent. Career-ending moves from Julie Bauke, known as Julie on the job. Julie, take us through it.
5: It is, You know, we all sit out here and we look at the football coach at Michigan State. We look at you know, people who are in these high-level positions that do stupid things. And you sit there and you think, all right, I think those of us who are not in those roles look at that and say, well, wait a minute, you're paying me, if someone's paying me millions and millions of dollars to do this job, I'm gonna keep my nose clean. I'm not going to risk that. But there's something about power that is, that I, I don't know, does it make people lose their minds? But when you look at what a Mel Tucker at Michigan State, for example, had to lose, and we don't have all the facts on that, that's pre- that's pretty new. But it yeah. was just one more example of, when people get into power, they, they kind of lose their common sense and they believe that they are invincible, untouchable. And we see it in corporations, we see it in Hollywood, we see it everywhere we look, that it's now I, because I'm in this high level position, I am untouchable, nobody can bring me down. And then they just do stupid things, and then when they do those stupid things, those stupid things are broadcast to the world. And so, not only is the fall is the fall further, but the ramifications of it are much are much bigger and potentially career ending.
0: Yeah. Um, when you're screening somebody as the employer or the hiring manager, should you be able to pick up on this, or not necessarily?
5: You know, it it is, I am a big fan of um, reference checking in a non-traditional way. And there are, and when you are looking, especially to to fill a position where that person is going to have a lot of influence over other people, then I think you owe it to your organization to go beyond just the references I give you to check for me. You go, you find somebody who used to work at that company You look on LinkedIn, you go on Glassdoor, and you ask them, what kind of leader was so-and-so? Would you want people that you cared about to work in so-and-so's department? There's always, you know, we have a situation, I know of a situation locally for me anyway, that this person had a reputation as being exactly what we're talking about. And he left the organization and was hired by a different organization that I know if they had done their due diligence, they would have found this out. It was the worst kept secret in town, Mm. but because sometimes our propensity is, well, we don't know for sure what happened. It's one person's word against the other. And we, and this is our buddy, you know, it's, it's not always obvious. So that's why you have to not only take people's feedback seriously if you hire somebody, let's just say you hire a man and he clearly makes the women in the department uncomfortable, you know, there's something to that, even though you don't understand it as maybe a leader, one level up, maybe you don't understand it, but you are obliged to take, to try to get to the bottom of it and take action because the guys, the people who are really smart who do this, they don't do it with witnesses, you know, they're right. I mean, it's, but, but It is going to come out. And where it happens in this case with Mel Tucker, we don't know the whole story yet, of course. But in many of these situations, the biggest thing to watch out for here is he had influence over that woman's career. He hired her to do some work for them. Therefore, he could make or break her career. And that's where you get into that imbalance of power. And it's true whether it's men or women, it just happens to usually be men who have the power and then which require which then causes the people who they have power over to smile and suck it up because they don't want to lose their jobs.
0: Thanks, Julie. Career expert Julie Bauke, known as Julie on the job. A new study by NerdWallet finds seventy percent of engaged Americans say they're facing money challenges during wedding planning, and fifty-four percent of engaged Americans don't agree with their partner on financial goals. Here to explain the disconnect is Kimberly Palmer, personal finance expert at NerdWallet. Kimberly, give us findings.
6: Well, getting married is actually very financially stressful. As anyone who has gotten married knows, weddings are so expensive. And so they take a lot of effort to plan and budget for. And one challenge is that in a lot of cases, couples aren't exactly on the same page when it comes to what they want to spend money on, what they want to cut back on. So basically, anyone getting married has to sort through all of this. And it's quite a challenge.
0: Sounds like failure to communicate.
6: It is all about communication. I mean, really the first step is to talk with your partner about what you really want, what you care about. For some people, it's going to mean scaling back on the number of people you invite, so you can spend more on the food per person, for example, whereas other people want a huge party and you know spend less on other things. You could get married on a weekday, for example, or you could DIY some of your decorations. There's all kinds mm. of ways to save money. It's really all about what you want.
0: I don't envy anybody who's getting married these days, it just seems so expensive, whether it's for the videographer or a DJ, the venue. I mean, plus, I, I presume like most couples, maybe you're trying to save money for a house. It just seems impossible. I mean, what do these folks do? What, what, how do they even begin this discussion?
6: Well, I think what you alluded to, the fact that people are also juggling other financial goals really gets at the core of what's so challenging, because, for example, when you get married, you might also want to go on vacation or Mm. buy a home. And so you're juggling all of those priorities. And so it really starts with figuring out what is most important to you, because you might have to cut back on some things just so you can make some other dreams come true.
0: We're speaking with Kim Palmer, personal finance expert at NerdWallet. She's got a survey, or the company has a survey, with regards to 70% of couples facing money challenges while planning a wedding. They're barely even off the ground yet as, a, as an official couple. Um, this one stat jumped out too, Kim. 54% of engaged Americans don't agree with their partner on financial goals. Yikes.
6: It is pretty shocking, but it just speaks to the fact that really getting in sync about what you're most looking forward to and what you want to put money on in the first year of marriage and beyond, just talking about that up front. A lot of couples say that they wish they had more of those chats before actually walking down the aisle. So it can be really helpful to talk about money, talk about your priorities, just so you can get on that same page before you even have the wedding. And then that can also make the whole wedding budgeting process go a little more smoothly, too.
0: All right. right. So it sounds great in principle, right? Just communicate more, talk about it. But how do you begin the conversation sometimes about money? It's a tough subject.
6: It is tough, and because it can be potentially awkward and uncomfortable, you really don't want to ambush someone by just bringing it up out of the blue. It can actually be helpful to let your partner know, hey, I want to talk about money. Let's have this conversation. How about we set aside time, 3 o'clock on Saturday, so everyone is mentally prepared because if it just you know, comes up out of the blue at night, it can lead to more tension and even yeah. fights. And so planning ahead to have that talk even before you have it can help.
0: That's Kimberly Palmer, personal finance expert at NerdWallet. thanks for being here you scroll through instagram and like every post that you see you watch an acquaintance's story as soon as they post it then it hits you didn't you just leave a comment on that person's post yesterday and the day before that are you a reply guy or an accidental instagram creep here's david oliver wellness reporter at usa today david who are they
7: so these people are you know people who probably you know it's unclear if they're doing this innocently or maybe they have some kind of hidden agenda but it's people who respond to like every Instagram story that somebody posts whether it's to flirt whether it's just a message and say just you know a kind message of some kind but for whatever reason it's annoying to the person that they're receiving Uh, I guess annoying to the person who's receiving
0: these messages okay so I I assume this is uh, not a celebrity you're responding to right who has like 50,000 comments or something and they probably won't notice this is somebody who is maybe a casual acquaintance or a friend and that friend is thinking wow this person responds to everything
7: exactly it's more likely than not more of an acquaintance less than a friend because a friend there you could have a conversation with like hey you're really responding to all my instagram stories or maybe you want that because they're a friend and you appreciate the friendship but yeah this is for the kind of a casual acquaintance who you might follow on Instagram who you met one time, but suddenly you're like investing all the time in this one person, and it comes off as kind of an obsession.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, so how do you know the difference, I guess, between somebody who's uh, enthusiastic about social media or has nothing better to do versus, yikes, let's tone it down a little bit with all the comments.
7: I think it depends on the context. If this is like your mom's best friend or something,
0: or like a person that you met who you don't know super
7: well, and they're doing it who maybe is of a generation who, you know, has less ideas of how social media works, it could be more innocent that way. If it's somebody in your peer group, it could be somebody who might be romantically interested or otherwise wants to get to know you and be in your life, but it's coming on a little bit too strong. You kind of have to gauge the situation from there as it is and sort of figure out how to approach it from there.
0: Is uh, one gender more likely to do this than another?
7: I wouldn't say it's more likely for one gender or another. I think that the term has definitely... I guess the term reply guy has come up as a type of person who fits into this, which is like a guy seeking the affection of maybe a woman or trying to flirt or coming off as creepy in some way by constantly responding to a woman's Instagram stories. This is also something in the gay community. Um, They're called pick-me-gays, people who, you know, seek attention from men this way as well. So I wouldn't say that it's a particular gender. It's not totally particularly gendered.
0: Hmm. we're speaking with david oliver wellness reporter at usa today his story is called are you an accidental instagram creep the truth about reply guys on social media you referenced it in your story too. pick me girls what does that mean
7: it's something a little bit different that's sort of somebody who's like trying to be on social like trying to act like they're like um somebody who's like i'm not like the other girls kind of a person it's sort of a different phenomenon i don't know exactly how these terms all came to be, but it's something a little bit different. It's something to be careful of um, in terms of, I guess, conflating these two things together.
0: All right, so somebody's listening to you and me, and they think, oh, yeah, I could see or I might be considered a little over the top, like like that guy, the reply guy. How do you fix it?
7: Um, main thing is, if you feel like it's you, maybe tone it down a little, potentially stop. You could always mute the person on social so you don't really see um, things that they're postings. Maybe you could cool off that way. Or, you know, have a conversation with that person or say, like, you know, you can be forward about it and say, like, if you feel like you're being overbearing and whatnot, um, that's when we need to do it.
0: Thanks, David. David Oliver, wellness reporter at USA Today. We'll finish with this. While he has become a regular site for locals, he continues to catch visitors off guard with his unusual antics. A golden retriever named Huckleberry who lives in Austin, Texas enjoys spending his days chilling out on his owner's roof. His obsession with spending time up there caused a stir in the community at first, with neighbors constantly knocking on the door to let the owner know what he was up to. But the Daily Mirror says with every knock, the owner would have to spend 10 minutes explaining how he chooses to go up there and is not in danger from doing so. It prompted her to install a sign outside her house explaining Huckleberry's behavior hoping this would put an end to the constant knocks on the door. The sign reads, quote, Huckleberry is living up to his name and learned how to jump onto our roof from the backyard. Then it reads, we appreciate your concern, but please do not knock on our door. We know Huckleberry is up there. She says the knocking dropped to once or twice a week at this point, since some people still miss the sign when they're walking up to the house. That'll do it for this hour. For Jennifer Kashenka, I'm Gordon Deal. Thanks for listening to This Weekend.